0: multifamily projects, parking lot financing, and RV park acquisitions. Oh my. Sam Wilson of Brick and Investment Group sat down with me and we covered every nook and cranny of real estate. How do you value a parking lot? What are the perks of investing in secondary and tertiary markets? We really just followed the money in this episode. I love it. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show.
1: You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast.
0: Welcome to the Real Estate of Things podcast. I'm your host, Dalton Elliott. I'm joined today by Sam Wilson of Brickin Investment Group, a firm based in Memphis, Tennessee. Sam is an active investor in everything under the sun, self-storage, parking, multifamily complexes, RV parks, single family homes, and as if he didn't have enough time in the day, also the host of a daily podcast, How to Scale Commercial Real Estate. Sam, thank you so much for carving out some time to join. Hey man, the pleasure's all mine. Thanks for having me on, Dalton. For sure. So what I was learning a little bit about you, you know, real estate is what I live and breathe on my side of the fence. But before we dive into that, I have to ask you about parking. What does an investment in that space look like? How do you value the asset? What are the financing options? I'm incredibly curious because i know absolutely nothing about it
2: yeah most people don't to be honest with you it's a niche asset class i mean it's something pre-pandemic that was it was becoming an even a very challenging asset class to buy on any numbers that made sense you know you could buy you could buy parking lots in central business districts from Of course, everybody's going to say this from 2010 to 2017, 18, you know, where, where the parking as a parking investment made a lot of sense, you know, because you could buy it, you'd have operators that operate your lots. Of course, they're valued based upon net operating income. And that's what you bought. You were buying, you're buying a business with land attached to it. But that model really was starting to go out the window as these, you know, as developers and development started happening back in these, in, in you know, major urban centers. So, you know, parking lots started getting sold on a square foot basis. It became very, very challenging to find a parking lot that could be underwritten and purchased at a price that made sense. So, you know, it, even as a covered land play, it became challenging. So, you know, stuff was selling, but it would you know, the prices wouldn't even cover taxes. So it became very difficult. And then the pandemic just, just really was the stab in the heart. For parking investments, it's, it's coming back. I mean, there's still great opportunity, you know, parking garages, I think, are still, you know, in the right in the right places. Man, I'd love to own more parking garages. But for us, you know, I'll just give you the full color uh, of the, you know, what we did. We really just bowed out. March twenty twenty came. We we were we were fighting like cats and dogs to get a deal across the finish line. It was like, you know what, this is this is too hard. So it just took a real step back from that. We may we may dive into that again. How is it valued? I think I answered that, but maybe it didn't That operating income, just like everything else. You know, if it's making hundred grand a year and you're buying it on a ten cap, we're just gonna use easy numbers because I'm not, you know, using a calculator, it'd be you know worth a million bucks. So, and that's that's how you paid for it, or, or that's that's what you would pay for it. But you know, it's a simple, very simple business. Clean. It was very hands off once the asset was purchased. Financing. You know, you'd have to have the right banks that understood what you were doing. But a lot of times, you'd have guaranteed leases where you would just know exactly what the exactly to the penny what you were going to get paid that year. You know, you'd, you'd you'd basically sub it out to an operator that'd say, all right, I'm going to pay you X number of dollars for the rights to operate this lot. You go to your bank and say, Hey guys, I've got a lease for three to five years. This is what it is. You know, they're underwriting the lease that you've been given from that operator. And we'd always work with national operators because those were the big boys that, you know, they were publicly traded and, you know, had the had the balance sheet to back up the lease they were guaranteeing. So that made financing a lot simpler. Sure. What's normal leverage? Eighty percent. I mean, a- again, yeah, if you're if you've got a and we had the right we had the right relationships to get that. But yeah, I mean it was it just made sense. Again, it's like it was kind of like buying a, the better cap rates on the on the buy side, but it was kind of like buying triple net leases or things like that. Actually, a lot of more triple net leases. So it's yeah, there was it was a very it was a very easy once acquired an easy hands off business to own or, or you know hands off asset to own. But again, we we've stepped back from that. I may go back into it here shortly, but we'll just kind of see how things shake out. It's also. Something where, you know, we've kind of switched gears and really dived into some other asset classes. So, you know, it could, we could always get back in if we wanted to. But right now, it's it's kind of, uh, you know, on the back burner.
0: For sure. The real estate market on fire, right? We're on a, an absolute tear right now. So what are you focusing on? What asset classes have your attention? And to toss one more question in, how have you had to change your real estate strategy you know, pre-pandemic to today?
2: Yeah, it's a that's a good question. Focused on self storage and multifamily, which I mean, whoop-de-do, everybody's focused on that, right? Like, but change of strategy on that. I mean, the the thing is, is that there's still opportunity out there. It's hard to find. it's, a, it's every everything's tough to find. So it's not just limited to, to the parking assets that make sense. It's tough in all asset classes, but there are still deals out there. So focused on those two primarily, you know, on the, I forget what your next question was. So I'm just going to keep talking and you can tell me to, sh- to shut up whenever I've gone off script here. But uh, those are the two, you know, that were focused on, you know, the, the launch of the podcast, rebranding, you know, it, it has been a big part of that. I had to completely rebrand, you know, it was, we were parking your investments before, which was just kind of I'm just play on parking because that's all we were doing. So a complete rebranding, you know, and and just just shifting gears. But that's part of part of business is just being flexible and seeing when the when the when the wind shift to go, okay, all right, change gears, retool, pack everything up. We're going to we're going to sit here and think about this for a minute. And then we're going to change directions. And that's that's exactly what we did. Yeah.
0: So multifamily is the focus now. I assume you did not get your start in real estate in multifamily. Is that right? Were you on the SFR side first?
2: I was, yeah. I was single family for far too long. i uh, never quite figured it out, which is I did 60 some odd flips, owned a bunch of rental property. And it's, it was, yeah. So I bought it auctions. We did everything, man. I mean, it was iteration after iteration in the single family side in in 2018 bowed out of that. I said, look, you know, some 2013 and 2018 was all single family. And for me, it was not scalable in a capacity in which I liked it to be scalable. It was, and again, it goes back to everything from the people you're buying from to it's also the easiest point of entry, for really anybody getting into real estate, it's where, you know, 95%, I think I'm just making statistics up, which they're all made up on the spot anyway, are, uh, you know, people, that's where we start, right? It's like, oh, single family. I'll just, you know, that's an easy one. I can buy a house. Most people can buy a house. And so I realized that I was competing with the least skilled people in the industry. And that's frustrating where you're like, all right, you're an idiot. You, you paid, you know, $100,000 too much for this house because it's your first purchase. I can't compete with that. And so, just duking it out. We're kind of seeing that in the multifamily side of things right now, too, where big money's just chasing. They're just chasing any yield. It doesn't matter if it's you know, ten basis points uh, above zero. They're chasing yield in any capacity because everybody else is getting negative yield overseas. So why not dump it in the U.S. market where they can get any sort of positive yield? So again, we're we're duking it out on that front too. It's just there's just more zeros attached to it. But uh, you know, I, I digress. We. Yeah, 2018, I just i had enough and I said, man, I'm going to switch gears into another asset class. And that's when I that's when I moved into parking. And then in March of 2020, shifted gears from parking into multifamily and self storage.
0: Yeah. So the multifamily side, whenever you went from SFR to multifamily, what were the biggest, most notable differences when you're valuing the asset? Did anything pop up surprising? that, you know, you're like, I'm a real estate investor. I've been invested in real estate for years, going to do multifamily. It's the same thing. It's real estate. What surprises, lessons learned? What was in, you know, call it that first round of deals you did?
2: Yeah. And I think that the the, the notable thing there is that it's almost easier to get financing done, which is crazy. And I've heard that a thousand times, like the same amount of paperwork, just just bigger dollars, if not easier, because you're underwriting an income producing asset as opposed to underwriting a uh, single family home, what it could be, what it might be, and then monkeying around yeah, this the, the the hoops you have to jump through, I think is probably one of the most notable things where you're dealing with again professional industry players on the financing side that you just go, okay, this is this is a lot easier. I mean, yeah, you still got a lot of a lot of stuff to do. And there's still, you know, there's still hangups in it, but it's just, I don't know. When you, when anytime you can institutionalize and, and I'll make up a word here, but professionalize things, I think it becomes easier just from a, you know, feasibility side of things.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a different animal. You know, I got in on the multifamily financing side and it's probably three or four years ago. And I thought, how much different can it be than, you know, the, the SFR side. And from a dollars and cents standpoint, yeah, it's just bigger money, but it is a a much more standardized process nationwide, the multifamily side. And I think that's because the large institutional money has just been playing around in that space for a longer period of time. And you, you mentioned kind of the big players, bigger institutions I want to touch on that a little bit, so conferences are back live. we're traveling, we're sitting in rooms listening to to folks talk, prognosticate. and one topic that keeps coming up the last couple of ones I went to, one was a multifamily specific conference, but one topic is kind of the David and Goliath fight between call it run of the mill investors and institutions, right? Should we as ins- uh, we as real estate investors be scared of these institutions who are swooping up 500,000 property portfolios left and right, shifting gears really to the SFR side of the fence for talk? Is that something that you're seeing? You're in Memphis, you're in a super hot market. I know you invest outside of Memphis and we're going to pick your brain about some secondary and tertiary markets where I think the massive opportunities are, or the findable opportunities are at this time. But what's your take on that battle, if we can call it that, on the single-family side, yeah, single-family kind of mom-and-pop investors versus institutional
2: investors, and that—that's one of the things we saw here in Memphis. You know, it's a great—I mean, well-known for its for its exceptional cash flow. You know, you can buy real estate here that, and that's going away, obviously, with the prices of everything driving up. And part of the institution, the institutional money coming in, has really changed that. But even at at, at auctions, which is where we really spent the bulk of our time, was foreclosure auctions. And it became apparent that you would have these REITs or these hedge funds that would come in and we'd be at an auction and they may have $5 million in their pocket to spend. right? And they may be paying $0.95 on the dollar or $0.98 on the dollar for a property they've never seen the inside of. I couldn't compete with that. Like I'm, I'm a small fish, you know, we had, we had a few hundred thousand bucks plus some hard money to spend. It's like, all right, so I can buy one or two houses at a time. I just can't, I can't duke it out with you on that front. The risk is way too high. So, you know, I don't don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but, but that's one of the reasons we stepped out. So yeah, it squeezes people out, but it it also did. (laughs) That's on the buy side, but also you got to look at it the other way too. On the sell side, you can get paid so it uh, just depends on which side of the which side of the uh, fence you're sitting on that you go gosh this sucks or man this is beautiful because it's driving prices up for everything and so i've unloaded some stuff this year on the single family side just trying to get rid of some legacy all about commercial and that's where i want to be where my focus to be so i've been divesting of assets and it's like i mean asking price plus no contingencies no inspections like this is madness Madness for rental property that you go, there's hardly cash flows. You know, sure, sign the contract, go.
0: We have money, we want property. It's a simple equation here.
2: It's a simple equation. There's a buyer, I'm a seller. Thank you. Have a good day. I'll take your check.
0: Yeah, no shortage of folks, especially during the pandemic, talking with who, you know, hey, I've aggregated f- even as little as 50 or 100 properties in a portfolio, that are getting attention from institutional groups. Like, sure, we'll take a look at it. We'll see if it it fits our box. And it's a simple yes-no formula, right? Yes, this fits our box. No, it doesn't. If yes, then money goes out the door to you. So there's there's a double-edged sword as with everything, right? And like you said, depends on which side of the transaction you're on, which market, how you're competing. It's It's not as simple as I think some people would would like or some people feel the answer is.
2: Right, for sure. Yeah, there's there's definitely pros and cons to it. Yeah.
0: So let's talk a little bit about, you know, we have primary, secondary, and tertiary markets. That's how markets are broken up. Primary markets, absolutely blazing fire. Austin is my favorite one to pick on. Isn't it for everyone right now? But like May of last year to May of this year, upwards of 40% year over year appreciation, which is just absolute, absolute craziness. So, you know, you look at there, probably not going to find a lot of good deals and steals in the Austin market or other primary markets. So, looking at secondary and tertiary markets, I know you just closed on a deal. Uh, I'm in Greenville, South Carolina. You're in Memphis, not too far away. You closed on a multifamily apartment complex in Columbia, South Carolina, which is an hour and a half east of me. Talk to me a little bit about why you're getting into that market. What's the draw for you for secondary and tertiary markets? And do you have to change your approach when you're investing in you know, a larger market like Memphis compared to a smaller market like Columbia?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Yes is the answer. I mean, you can get burned if you go back to 2008, the number of investors that I mean they, they, there's what they call that recency bias where people just forget that the crap actually hit the fan in practically everything and a lot of a lot of multifamily investors lost their shirt. And why did they lose their shirt? You know, I think what again, I'm I'm just kind of I don't have empirical evidence to, to substantiate these claims, but it's just kind of from observation. You go, why they lose their shirt? Oh, because they went to you know markets outside of major markets. They went to like you know small towns, almost say thirty or forty-five minutes from maybe the the, the downtown. Right, a little too far out for most people. Maybe those markets were based upon a certain industry where, you know, you had only one or two major players that were supporting the people living there. I mean, i talk talked to a number of people who are like, they said they had parking lots full of moving trucks. Okay. Like half the tenants are moving out in a week and you've got a 200 unit property. I mean, this is, this was, these are real life stories. And I just sat there with my jaw on the desk going with like the real or the management company, literally, literally getting a call and they were crying going, my gosh, what do we do? They're not even like, Hey, we're breaking the lease. They're just packing up and leaving. Like it's gone. The town dried up. So I think it's one of the mistakes that people made is they got too far out. But that does not mean that you can't go to secondary markets or tertiary markets. You just have to really know the metrics that go into those, and you know, see see how they're valued. Like why 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 is Columbia? And again, I'm not all. You know, I I can give you a dozen reasons why I love Columbia. But there's a a lot of good anchor stuff going on in Columbia. So I don't view Columbia as that one. That that one uh, employer town, or that one, you know, it might be one of you know, somewhere else, maybe like a one employer town 30 or 45 minutes from downtown, but just too far out. So, Columbia is not that. So, looking in the Columbias, the Greenvilles, places like that have, you know, incredible. Metrics to them, and still you know promise the potential for return. So I think looking at those, looking at the looking at the job growth, looking at you know developments, looking at what you know what what's going on at the city county level. What are those you know? They're just looking at all those things and saying, hey, look, this paints this paints a good picture. And also the other thing you can do is go smaller, right? Like if you don't want to compete with the big boys buying you know three hundred plus A you know class A, maybe you can go class B minus. And maybe it's 100 units or maybe it's 75 units. Maybe you go underneath that ceiling of where everybody else is flying. You go, okay, we're going to stay low. And, you know, you can pick up stuff that way that still makes sense. So, you know, there's things you can do. But, again, I'm notorious for wandering all over the place here, Dalton. So I have no idea, actually, what your question was.
0: No, you nailed it. Just going through the really secondary and tertiary market analysis approach.
2: Yeah, and look at at stuff like, you know, you you get too far out there. Um, I don't know anything about Wichita, Kansas, right? I don't know anything about it, but that's one that comes to mind where I just go, Wichita, hmm. That seems like a place that can dry up in a hot second. I could be dead wrong. I have no idea. I've never, never so much as done even even a you know population growth study on Wichita. Kansas City is a, is another tertiary market that people are are interested in. But what are the what are the dynamics there? I don't know. I'd be more I'd be more betting on Kansas City than, than Wichita. So those are things also I look at and I just go okay. You know, keep keep keeping your keeping your criteria refined. I think is super important. So, and again, you know, I don't want to rehash everything I just said, but that's um, those are some of the thoughts surrounding that.
0: Yeah, really, really just seems like it boils down to a risk reward. Your primary markets are always going to be your most stable because they're the most population dense with the most employers and the most action going on. Uh, and then the further you get away from those major metros... The risk reward just increases, right? You're not gonna have to compete and pay as high of a price, but there's reason for that. And sure, the, you know, we're seeing this in the Greenville area. It's just a growth outward. Same thing with Atlanta, just a clean growth outward. But that's not the case everywhere. So to presume that, hey, this place is 30 minutes outside of the action, but five years from now, surely it will have expanded. Maybe not. That's where you talked about, you know, population growth, population density, and really analyzing what, what are the growth patterns look like? What are the draws? Are there new, uh, employers coming into the town that are going to throttle that up? That's definitely something on the multifamily side that, you know, we were talking about the differences between SFR and multifamily, uh, SFR versus multi on the multi side. So much more of that comes into play whenever you're looking at a project, right? Like who, what does the employer activity look like? Is it near, a, if it's near a, a military base, that's a plus. If it's near, you know, if it's in a college town or like all different types of factors come into play where on the SFR side, there's a little more simplicity. What's the value of this house on the open market? Yeah, less, less at
2: play there. Hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, it's, it's interesting. I was talking to a, a guy yesterday that that he he's a uh, a big data analyst. Like we talk data on stuff that you can't even. I was just like, dude, I'm you know drinking from a fire hose. But one of the things he was talking about was he, he called it his his affordability deviations, where he would he would take like you know a thousand properties in a market, and then he would take the average incomes, and he would he would compare that to the the markets with the greatest. Or, the, or the, he would compare the, the incomes to the rent price or the sales price of homes, right? And, it, and he'd call it as affordability deviation. He one of his one of his downside predictors, right? And so then he would say, okay, so we've got we've got this data, and then he would go back and compare it to like 2007, and he would say the greater the spread between the price to rents, or, or, or excuse me, the, the income to rents, or the greater the spread from income to housing prices, the sharper the correction, right? And so it was. He, he would, and so he picked out a bunch of markets, and he would say, "All right, so look. So here's the ones that really took it on the chin." And then he would say, "But look, there's also some markets in the same time frame that were undervalued, where the income growth relative to rent price, or income growth relative to the average home price, was." you know, much smaller and, or, you know, the income was increasing at a rate greater than the price of the properties, which was just a really fascinating, I mean, he did over thousands and thousands of properties. And I was like, that's a really unique way of looking at that. So, you you know, doing things like that against a Charlotte market, right. And say, okay, you know, what's that look like is, is, is Charlotte overpriced or is it just right in line? I don't know. It's, It's one of those things.
0: I think that is an incredibly important piece of advice that gets lost. I think that too often, you know, investors and folks in the real estate industry as a whole tend to get caught up in trying to boil down the entire United States real estate market to a couple of headlines. It's doing great, it's booming, or it's going down, it's terrible. Just because it's on a, a downslope doesn't mean that it's not investable, right? They're, they're going to be... Know your market. That's the big piece of advice there. That regardless of what's going on, and you know, if I'm in Greenville, South Carolina, and New York, and San Francisco, and Austin are you know going up or down or whichever way, that you know it may happen that Greenville is having similar effects, or it may be the complete opposite. So even whenever headlines may read one way or the other, uh, if you know a market and you feel good about it or bad about it, you know you got to do your own homework. You cannot just feel like if I buy it, they will come. If I buy it, it will continue producing. Got to have a little bit of uh, eyesight out in front of your skis. So one more kind of pointed question, right? You have massive experience across all these different asset classes from, and answer this however you want, from simplicity's sake, from just dollars and cents sake. What's your favorite and what's your least favorite?
2: Asset class. That's a good question. Jeez, favorite asset class. My favorite one is the one that makes money, right? I don't, I don't really care if it. I mean, we we could be selling dog kennels, and if it's if it's making money, man, like great. I don't know. I'm an opportunist, so you know, if there's opportunity, I want to participate in it. Yeah, that's 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 unfortunately the wrong answer, but you know, I like multifamily. I think it's fun. I think it's unique in its ability. It's you know to Take the cash flow and leverage that into an equity gain. You know, I think that's that's amazing where you can raise rents. You know, if you if you can produce twenty five bucks a unit across X number of units, and suddenly you've just created several hundred thousand dollars in, in equity. Like that's that's brilliant. You know, it's harder to do in self storage, but not impossible. There's still that there. You're just not going to get quite. I don't think the equity multiple that uh, maybe you do in multifamily. So and, and you know those wins can change too. So that's, that's something to keep, keep in mind. But I mean, those, those two are great. One, one asset class that we are actively pursuing is boat and RV storage. I don't know if anybody's paid attention to that, but boat and RV deliveries are up like 30% year over year in 2020 to 2019. And they've done it over again in 2021. I mean, that's madness. That is madness. Like 30% growth in, in new deliveries, which has come, you know, it's, it's just stemming from two things. One, you know, incredible amounts of money being flushed into the system, and then secondly, obviously, the lack of travel outside of the United States and more restricted travel has said, you know, it's forced people to go. Okay, we're going to kind of retool the way the family vacations. So with that, I mean, where are these people have to store this stuff, right? They're going to have to find your neighborhood. Your HOAs aren't going to allow you to park that thirty-five foot RV and that brand new boat in your driveway. So you know the 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 I think that's a that's an asset that's an asset class that is only going to or, or a niche inside of the storage asset class that's only going to you know get stronger. I mean, you go out to these places in Colorado. We've toured I've toured more storage facilities like this. Not even not even like buildings, just open lots, six foot fences, controlled gating, and I mean, and there's marked out spaces, but that's it. I mean, just just stacked hundreds deep, and it's like, my gosh, this is. And use them that often. Well, they use them. I own an RV and luckily I live in a place where I can park it in my own driveway. It might get driven once a month, maybe. Hey, once every six weeks. So you got to, I mean, you know, I live in an older neighborhood where we don't have to pay HOA fees.
0: Yeah. I So when I was in the very end of high school and college summers, I would spend at a campground. I grew up in Myrtle's Inlet, just south of Myrtle Beach area and did landscaping at a campground. And one of the most constant know it's going to happen drives for revenue was storage, right? Especially because some people would make their last trip of the year, you know, bring the kids down for Labor Day, right? Just before school starts, last trip, leave the RV or camper and then take the car back home. And then the first trip when everything warmed back up was back down there. To the same campground pick your camper up they would winterize it charge you a fee they would de-winterize it charge you a fee and yeah it's just this gated open space with rvs and trailers like sick backed in six inches apart from each other we had two guys at the campground and that was their job they would move those things in and out when people were checking in and the whole summer that's all they did eight hours a day 40 hours a week so no surprise, I my wife and I have chatted about getting an Airstream early on in the pandemic. And it was not early enough that we had the conversation because we were in Dallas visiting my sister and we swung by a massive Airstream dealer out there. And the place looked like it had been robbed. They had one, one tiny Airstream and one big demo Airstream. And they're like, yeah, get in line north of a year for delivery times. And we we're like, well guess this just isn't meant to be, well, uh, pandemic might be over by then. But all that said, you know, something that pre-pandemic you could get easily 15, 20, maybe 25% off. Now it's full boat and get in line and then we'll get it to you when we get it to you. So the storage piece sounds pretty, pretty enticing.
2: Yeah you you you're 100% correct 100% correct and and Lord help us if there's a downturn because that's when your opportunity to buy all these is going to come you, you you take all that knowledge you have in you know in lease options in buying things you know subject to leaving debt in place things like that i mean essentially you know, buying out the note or, or leaving the note in place. I mean, I think you're going to have your opportunity. That's another prediction, a wild a wild uh, prediction. But I think here, here, when we, when we see a correction, you're going to have loads of opportunity to buy as many of these RVs and things that you want where people two years later are like, well, crap, I can't afford that anymore. What am I going to do? And we, we got a hundred percent financing on it. I need out. So I don't know.
0: Yeah. I, I think I, we came to the same conclusion like this. Certainly, you know, that, that, type of vacationing may have a normalized uptick because of it, but it's not going to be anywhere near the uptick in the actual units themselves. All right. So yeah, I think wait on the sidelines a year or two, then maybe pick, pick one up at a sweet discount. That seems to be the play. And then store it over at one of your beautiful storage spaces. That's the play in full circle.
2: That's it, man. That's it. And that's the other thing in that, in that, in that space, like people are going to pay their rent. Right, like if you're paying a hundred bucks a month or a hundred and fifty bucks a month to park your facility or park your unit, like okay, that's a hundred thousand dollar rig plus. That's
0: true. Yeah, that collateral is nice.
2: Yeah, when we have when we have a sheriff sale, you, you, you're just not gonna. I mean, most people at least aren't gonna let that happen. So you know, unlike traditional storage, where it's like, oh crap, I got some old raggedy furniture and you know boxes of, of you know moth-eaten clothes and in a bed I don't even like because it squeaks, like I'll just leave it and let them sell it because it's only a thousand bucks in stuff. It's like, well, no, this is a hundred thousand dollar RV. We're not going to just let you you know pawn this off because I didn't pay a hundred fifty dollars a month to store it. Now you're getting me
0: excited thinking about the the value of the collateral there versus the exponentially lower you know annual cost but the the psychology there and just the common sense of you're gonna pay that bill every single month on time sounds like one of the more secure investments
2: yeah you're absolutely right I mean it's it, it uh, it's the collateral the cost of the collateral that makes that makes it more likely to pay and again people are people do the dumbest things. I mean the dumbest things. I saw I saw people do stuff that would just blow your mind in the foreclosure business. We were buying foreclosures, you know. It's it just like you didn't even take the time to put this on the market and just close out your position. Like you could have sold it at as, as is and picked up another twenty or thirty grand and walked away with that in your pocket. But instead, instead you just got hung up in your situation and panicked and did absolutely nothing. Did you ever call the bank? No, I don't think you did. Did you ever respond to the letters that they sent to you? No, I don't think you did. Like you're an idiot. And so I think you're going to see that. I mean, you're bound to see it even, even in the boat and RV storage space. So I'm not, I'm not predicting there'll be no, no share of sales of those items. I'm just saying, I bet it's going to be less.
0: One, one would imagine that that seems like a, uh, it seems like a solid prediction to lock in. (laughs) I like it. So, so what have we missed? What have we missed?
2: Oh man, I don't know. I mean, you know what? Uh, you can take this anywhere you want. We've talked parking. We've talked multifamily. Uh, we've talked regular storage. We've talked self storage. You know, of course, um, you know boat and RV storage. You know, RV parks is another fascinating one. I'm a passive investor in RV parks, and that's fun. That's fun to watch. That's not an asset class I understand, so I've not launched into being an active investor in that. I look at deals all the time, but it's it's uh, it's a retooling. And they're trading, I don't know, they're trading at cap rates now that, that are, again, everything's getting compressed, but, you know, trade at 8, 10 caps, which is fine, but it's also a much more hands-on business. Um, you know, if, you're, if you've are if got overnight stays, if you've got, uh, you know, just people coming in for one night, you know, in an RV park, things like that, it's, it's, it's not a not somewhere I'm going. But that's, it's an intriguing asset class to watch because, I mean, again, going back to the boat and RV stores, now people need to go have somewhere to stay when they go on vacation, You can do, you know, call it off grid using your RV. You've certainly done it plenty. You've got generators on board. You've got hot water heaters on board. You got everything on board for a little self-contained unit for a while. But if you're going, if you're going somewhere and staying and want to actually like stay in and and then go out and do things from a base camp, you're typically going to want an RV park. So those are, those are fun things also to look at. I kind of look at it more as a, just a, a, you know, free entertainment to go, huh, what's this stuff trading for? That's, that's curious. But, um, you know, that's, uh, that's probably just me being distracted, you know, upon the uh, actual goal at hand.
0: No, uh, definitely something that I realized when I was doing landscaping at one. So the one that I worked at was right on the ocean had about 1200 transient sites, 800 permanent sites, and Water park, full water park. They had a a full amphitheater. They did a show every Sunday that had been going on for decades. Uh, It's family owned, been in the same family for, I think at this point, 60 plus years. And you had a contingent of folks who would come in. Like there was this one particular group that would come in and fill out the campground in the winter. You know, food, everything. You didn't have to leave the place. It was a resort type environment and throughout summer, really down in that neck of the woods, you know, Myrtle Beach area from Memorial Day to Labor Day, packed out, top to bottom, right? Like like as a grown up as a local, you you never went into Myrtle Beach proper during the summer. It was just not worth it. There's headache. You would, you know, I was in Myrtle's Inlet just a little south. So you would stay there or go further south into like Polly's where it was just not overrun by tourists and tourists are the lifeblood of that economy right like everything is built up around it whenever Labor Day hits the place empties out now more and more people have been moving down to that area especially retirees from the Northeast you can you know I can sell my place for 850 or 1.2 and I can go down and buy something that's similar for half the price in the Myrtle Beach area and golf for the rest of my life plenty of golf down there. Uh, but just you know, being at one point, I've kind of worked in the front office a bit during one summer, and you know, just seeing some of the numbers—if you do it right—you can have quite an attractive business going on and cash flow like crazy. And and yeah, you have you know you have to have maintenance crew on staff because you know sewage pipe busts—you can't just let that. Sit you have water you're providing you had trash truck that ran through so a normal city trash truck that would go through the whole campground every single day, seven days a week so it is it is its own city right and that's a that is a you know kind of crazy example, but all that said like you have uh, it's quite a diverse asset class.
2: Yeah. And I think one of the things that you pointed out there was that, you know, previously, a, a lot of these campgrounds were seasonal. You know, they, they'd empty out in, in Labor Day. But, but even more, what we're seeing is that they're going year round, which is another indication of, I mean, even even in your, even in your mountain states, you know, these, these campgrounds used to be, or these RV parks were, you know, open, like you said, Memorial to Labor Day, the people would come in, the people would leave. But a lot of them are going year round now. Which just further increases the the, the demand, not increase the demand, but further is an example of the of the of the increase in demand. I
0: think we're good, man.
2: Rock and roll, man. But hey, I've enjoyed it. Yeah, certainly. Thanks for having me on. Hope uh, was able able to provide some value uh, to you and your listeners.
0: Yeah, we covered a bunch of topics. I love when I asked you the favorite, least favorite. I was like, I, I know what this is going to be because your pattern doesn't exist, right? It's such a diverse background of asset classes that you're just like, where am I going to make money? If I can make money here, I'm going to go there and I'm going to go make money. And whenever there's something else that there's, you know, an opportunity cost to weigh, I'm going to go over there. So, so I love it. Is, uh, it's a multifamily. Do you have any other markets outside of the Southeast or are you playing mostly in the Southeast?
2: It's mostly in the Southeast. It's, uh... Yeah. I don't, I just don't have the bandwidth and I don't want the bandwidth to, you know, to go outside of it. There's, there's plenty of opportunity. So staying there is, I've looked at other markets, spent some time, you know, working with some other operators this year, vetting their markets, traveling, looking at deals they're working on. And in the end, it just became, it was like, you know, this is spreading myself too thin. So it doesn't make sense. I don't know it that well, you know, stick to what you know, stick to what you know. And if it's working, you know, if it, if it isn't broke, don't fix it.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, the the simple advice that's been around forever has been around forever for a reason. So anytime we get distracted and try to get a little too creative, high chance it's going to bite you in the tail. And the, the, the thing you think of is going to be simple, like I should have just stuck with what I knew and here I am now.
2: That's exactly right. That's exactly right.
0: Hey, Sam, thank you so much for joining me, talking about everything from RV parks, self-storage, parking, multifamily real estate, everything under the sun. I love it. Thanks so much for joining. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on, Dalton. Do appreciate it. Take care.
1: Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable, common-sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team, and that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out limaone.com or call 800-259-259. 0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.